The Empress Dowager, Tzu Shi, sat upon a large carved rosewood throne, not moving a muscle. She wore an imperial yellow robe festooned with pearls and embroidered with a decoration of undulating purple and green wisteria vines. The gown covered her from her slender neck to her ornate silk platform slippers. At her right shoulder hung eighteen large pearls spaced with flat disks of transparent green jade. So she rested one of her long gold gem-encrusted nail covers against the arm of her chair. She watched Catherine Carl paint, observing the foreigner's pale skin, high nose, and curling brown hair. She hoped Mrs. Conjure was right about this painting for the upcoming American exhibition. Done for today, Carl set her brush down and smiled brightly at the Empress Dowager. Princess Derling quickly translated for her, so she nodded. She smiled faintly as she left the room, but as she rounded the bend in the hall, her lips curved into a tight grimace. There would be no respite. She had work to do. The country remained in a precarious situation, both within its borders and on the global stage. Hello and welcome to History Unhemmed, a podcast that debunks, decentralizes, and digs into tailored taboos, sartorial scandals, controversial couture, and other infamous moments in fashion history. I'm your host, Felicia. For the bibliography of today's episode and other suggested readings, check out the show notes wherever you get your podcasts. Some of our content may be inappropriate for younger and more sensitive ears, so listener discretion is advised. Today, we're going to be discussing one of history's most notorious, and I would say complex, fashionistas, the Empress Dowager Zixi. But before we get into that, it would be remiss of me not to provide you with a little background about Qing Dynasty court dress, basically how it all worked for the couple hundred years leading up to today's story. Clothing had been used dynasty after dynasty throughout China's history to consolidate power. The Manchus established the Qing Dynasty in 1644, and in 1759, the Qianlong Emperor, who ruled from 1735 to 1796, issued the Huangshaolishi Tushi, or, in translation, Illustrated Regulations for Ceremonial Paraphernalia of the Present Dynasty. And we're going to stick to Huangshaolishi Tushi for the sake of brevity. The Huangshaolishi Tushi was an extensive dress code that extended from the emperor on down to the lowest-ranking courtier. Qianlong hoped that by instituting the dress policy, that his dynasty would be able to preserve its Manchu identity and that it would prevent the Qing from assimilating into larger Han society. Assimilation meant losing the upper hand, something the Manchus had seen at the collapse of the Mongol-led Yuan dynasty some centuries earlier. Qianlong also wanted to connect the image of the Qing emperor to the deeply ingrained Confucian mandate of heaven ideology that permeated the region, so dress had to remain at least somewhat familiar to the Qing's Chinese subjects. The Huangshaolichi Tushi divided clothes into official and non-official categories, and then further subdivided them by degree of formality. The official robe or chaofu was reserved for formal audiences or ceremonies, and featured detached collars and attached pleated skirts decorated with dragons. The features of each dragon, for example the number of claws it might possess, corresponded to the wearer's status. 
Less formal than the chaofu was the jifu, which was worn for regular court business. Jifu were long, with front flaps that folded over one another. They had long sleeves that, like the chaofu, ended in hoof-shaped cuffs. They were also typically decorated with emblems of rank. Markers on women's garments reflected the positions of their husbands, or, if they were unmarried, that of their fathers. Markers on women's garments also happened to reflect the patriarchal society that was China at the time. Men and women wore the informal changfu for daily life, usually with a short jacket, a sleeveless vest, or maybe with an overcoat. Changfu were also worn with a detached band at the neck that folded over the wearer's shoulder, which denoted said wearer's rank at court. Decoration on changfu varied widely. Now, let's get back to Tsushi. Little concrete information remains about the earliest years of the woman who would come to be known as Zixi or China's Empress Dowager. What we do know is that she was born with the name Yenahara on November 29, 1835. By all accounts, she was a beautiful young woman and received the basic education of a young lady of her station, but nothing more. She was sent at the age of 16 to be a concubine of the Shenfeng Emperor, and as gross as that might sound in modern terms... It was regarded as a great honor and a sign of favor. In the Forbidden City, she was given the title Concubine Yi. Yi entered the imperial household as a lower-ranking concubine, but according to several sources, caught the emperor's attention while singing in the palace gardens. At the age of 21, she gave birth to Shenfeng's first surviving son. When Shenfeng died in 1861, Yi's son, who would become the Tongzhe Emperor, was not yet of age. Concubine Yi and Empress Xiao Zhenxian, Shenfeng's widow, who had formally adopted Tongzhi, organized a coup that resulted in the appointment of the two women as joint de facto regents. Concubine Yi was elevated to Empress Dowager and given the honorific name Zixi, while Empress Xiao Zhenxian became the mother Empress Empress Dowager Zian. After Tongzhi died in 1874, Zixi's nephew Zaitan became the Guangxu Emperor. Because Guangxu was not of age at the time of his coronation, the two empress dowagers once again assumed the throne. Zan died several years later in 1881. In 1898, when Emperor Guangxu was caught meeting with the Japanese in order to establish a series of reforms in China, Zixi accused him of treason and had him imprisoned. She then seized control of the throne. Much of what we know of Zixi is based on hearsay and rumors. Keep in mind, she was a woman in a powerful position against the backdrop of 19th century American and European imperialism. Both the society she ruled over and the Western powers that tried to overrun it were extremely patriarchal. If gossip is to be believed, so she was an excessively vain, blood and sex fueled, opium sucking tyrant responsible for the death of rival concubines, her husband, son, daughter in law, co regent her nephew, her nephew's favorite concubine, scores of eunuchs, and a bunch of officials who defied her. That's quite a body count, and yet no worse than that of more than a few men in history who maintain reputations as powerful leaders. Not saying that running around killing everyone who disagrees with you is a good idea, but simply observing the way one is treated over another. Now, consider the vilification of Empress Wu, China's first female emperor, dating back to the 7th century. Empress Wu supposedly destroyed courtiers who defied her and killed her sister, 
older brothers, her mother, as well as the emperor. Empress Wu was described as cruel, with monstrous sexual appetites. It's not shocking that Sushi was described similarly. History, typically written by men, loves going straight for a powerful woman's genitals. Think of Catherine the Great of Russia and the rumor that she died during intercourse with a horse. Of course? Well, no. Sorry to burst your bubble, but it was a stroke that killed her. Not quite as salacious. So she was no exception. An image further perpetuated abroad by political cartoons, orientalist attitudes and dragon lady stereotyping, and false reporting from the likes of J.O.P. Bland and his cohort and source, an English linguist living in Beijing named Edmund Backhouse. In his memoir, Decadence Manchot, Backhouse describes in graphic detail his alleged illicit affair with the Empress Dowager. Keep in mind, we're talking about a woman who's more than 70 years old at the turn of the century. He claims that she had white men brought to the palace to fulfill her sexual appetites and had a standing appointment with Backhouse to regularly sodomize him with her abnormally large clitoris. Yeah. Later on, pretty much all of what Backhouse wrote about Sushi was proven to be false. Shocker? In the years following the disastrous 1900 Boxer Rebellion, Tsushi found herself inextricably linked to the anti-Western and anti-modernization factions that she had previously backed. The general public associated her with an increasingly corrupt government that sat on the brink of collapse, and over the next century, she would be scapegoated by both the Republican and Communist governments that followed. Today, many Chinese people still consider her the embodiment of a dark and disgraceful era in Chinese history. But not everyone saw her as a monster. In the decade after her death, several women who had interacted personally with her wrote and published about their own experiences with the Empress Dowager in order to dispel some of the vicious gossip. So she's lady-in-waiting, Princess Derling, a Manchu princess who had lived and studied in Paris, wrote several books about Zixi. Sarah Pike Conger, wife of Edwin Conger, the U.S. minister to China, became part of Zixi's inner circle of foreign women, which comprised mostly of diplomats' wives and the like. And Catherine Carl, an American painter who traveled to Beijing to paint Zixi's portrait for the St. Louis Exposition, published memoirs about their respective times spent with the Empress Dowager at the Qing court. These were less circulated, perhaps because they were not nearly as filthy, and thus not as much fun to indulge in. Let's face it, as a society, we all enjoy a bit of smut and scandal. These accounts do corroborate one another, though. Princess Derling mentions Catherine Carl in her memoirs writing that so she had confided in Derling that she had wanted the portrait to be done as quickly as possible, and was growing a bit tired of waiting for Carl to finish the portrait. Derling says that Zixi never let Carl see any of that impatience, though, and when she sat for it and came by to see how it was progressing, acted as though she couldn't have been happier to be there. Carl wrote of Zixi's politeness and warmth towards her, so apparently Zixi was able to be quite diplomatic. One can only wonder, though, if Carl read Derling's book after the fact. I kind of hope Carl did not. Contemporary biographers have tried to tell a less biased tale, with some even going so far as to regard her as a sort of proto-feminist hero, thwarted by petty and deceitful men at every turn. The truth about Sushi probably lies somewhere in between the two extremes of feminist reformer 
and hateful, bloodthirsty mass murderer. Was China's situation entirely her fault? No. The First Opium War took place in 1839 and marked the beginning of China's center of humiliation at the hands of Western imperial powers. She would have been four or five years old. By the time she was Empress Dowager in her 60s and 70s, shit had hit the fan long ago, and things were already pretty screwed up. Was she ruthless? Absolutely. She had to be to get where she did. But then, even take what I say with a tablespoon of salt, her character's not clearly defined, and that's not helped by the fact that she wrote little, if anything, about herself. In fact, accounts go back and forth calling her everything from barely literate to a sharp scholarly mind. What we do have are records and photographs. The Palace Museum in Beijing has preserved more than a hundred surviving photographs showing Cixi dressed in more than 30 different outfits. From April 1904 to August 1906, Cixi sent her photos to officials in Germany, Austria, Japan, Britain, the United States, France, Mexico, Italy, and the Netherlands. Each photo was carefully staged. Some of her seated on her throne, others making references to Chinese theater and mythology. In order to repair her image after the Boxer Rebellion, she looked to a monarch who was perhaps, at the time, the most photographed woman in the world. I'm of course referring to Queen Victoria. Victoria cultivated an image steeped in domesticity and tradition. She was a devoted wife and mother to her own family and in the British consciousness. So she, not so much. She had to combat a public image associated with being backwards. Tradition did not and would not help her. These photos were part of a massive attempt to overhaul her image, along with a series of modernization efforts to help China obtain electricity, telegraph, technology, Western medicine, steam engines, as well as a modern army and navy. She banned opium, publicly renounced the anti-foreign factions that she had previously supported, and took strides to reform the legal and education systems, advocating for girls' schools, even creating scholarships for female students. She also attempted to end the practice of foot-binding, which she detested. As a Manchu woman, her feet had never been bound, and she regarded the practice as barbaric and archaic. She was similarly disdainful of the corset. A believer that women should be able to move their bodies freely, she was quite proud of Manchu dress, often praising it in front of foreign visitors for its comfort, beauty, and pragmatism. The photographs taken by Yu Shunling, the younger brother of Princess Derling, who had studied with photographers in Paris prior to attending the Qing court, were her attempt to re-establish her own identity and create ties with other countries, to assert her place at the table, so to speak, and clothing was a means by which she could do that. China's silk production had been overseen by empresses for centuries. Clothing was a means by which high-ranking women had always been able to assume meaning and identity in a society that generally allowed them very, very little. Empresses dictated what patterns and styles would be favored, particularly on the less formal Changfu. As the emperor's mother, the dowager empress was allocated more materials for her wardrobe than anyone else at court. Yet, Despite receiving such an extensive wardrobe, the Huangsha Li Qi Tu Shi only mentions what an empress dowager should wear for official rites and observances on the emperor's birthday and for the new year. 
this lack of regulation underscores the little, if any, public action typically exercised by empress dowagers. They were seldom seen, and they rarely set foot outside the Forbidden City. So she was the exception, making frequent trips to her summer palace, which she vastly preferred to the Forbidden City. She was even responsible for the construction of the first imperial train line that ran between her different palaces. There were no rules about what a dowager empress should wear to travel, and definitely none about what she should wear while ruling the country. The photos were certainly thus an act of defiance. Not only did she do it, she made sure the rest of the world saw her doing it. So she's influence can most be seen on the Changfu in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. A number of trends emerged in the dress of Manchu court ladies due to her tastes, including the use of die-cast flat buttons, pastel and bold colors, and attached standing collars. Women began to wear large jade buttons in the shape of plants and animals, and folded sleeves with heavy bands of ornamentation and contrasting borders drawn from Han Chinese dress. European fabrics flooded into China, and Chinese manufacturers responded by creating imitations at lower costs and modifying foreign goods to meet local needs. Women's garments, both in and outside of court, were produced using foreign fabrics. Slimmer silhouettes based on European dresses were also seen at court, and new jacquard mechanisms on hand looms resulted in a proliferation of trims and ribbons on all manner of ladies' garments. Late 19th century court garments feature traditional embroidery and weaving techniques combined with some of the new modern technologies, separating them from the clothes of the earlier Qing court. So she herself admired such imports as French brocade and even had gowns made in it for herself. Silk consumption increased at home and abroad as the booming area of trade catered to an expanding merchant class, which contributed to a growing rivalry with the hereditary aristocracy. The rise of the non-Manchu merchant class with more and more disposable income, fed into larger society-wide appetites for luxury. This, in turn, set into motion the trappings of a fashion system, which presented a departure from the strictly enforced Confucian guidelines of dress of past generations. Both the photographs and personal accounts from her female cohorts repeatedly come back to the subject of her clothing and how she felt about dress. This was a ruler for whom dress was a strategically implemented tool, a delicately honed art form. According to Princess Derling's memoirs, two years in the Forbidden City, Zixi had a filing system for all of her jewelry with numbered boxes. Derling recounts the dates as she took her into a room specifically intended to hold jewelry. In her words, quote, This room was covered with shelves on three sides of the room from top to bottom on which were placed piles of ebony boxes all containing jewels. Small yellow strips were pasted on some of the boxes, on which was written the contents. Her Majesty pointed to a row of boxes on the right side of the room and said, Here is where I keep my favorite everyday jewels, and some day you must go over them and see that they are all there. The rest are all jewels which I wear on special occasions. There are about 3,000 boxes in this room, and I have a lot more locked up in my safety room. End quote. Though she did not abandon the official robes for certain occasions, so she preferred, whenever possible, to eschew them in favor of Changfu adorned with flowers and auspicious symbols, which she felt better suited her complexion. She popularized large embroidered floral motifs on women's court clothing. Wisteria and Narcissus bulbs were some of her favorite images, as well as butterflies, 
butterflies appear on a large number of late 19th and early 20th century women's garments and remain auspicious symbols in Chinese culture. Butterflies are typically associated with immortality, as well as a temperate summer, but they also illustrate the transition to autumn when depicted with chrysanthemums. Plants and flowers embroidered on garments dictated when a piece could and should be worn. For example, plum and cherry blossoms were associated with winter, peonies symbolized spring, and lotus flowers, summer. Chrysanthemums were worn in autumn. Minding these P's and Q's was critical if you wanted to avoid incurring the wrath of the empress. It was also important, in terms of presenting a sense of order and unity, to onlooking foreign eyes. As part of her new foreign policy, so she attempted to connect with foreign women, mostly the wives of diplomats and foreign ministers. She used clothing as a means of doing so, carefully observing what these foreign women wore to her tea and garden parties. She was inquisitive, often asking questions, and at one point had even learned enough English to personally welcome a group of ladies to one such garden party. The guests present at that party included Mrs. Conjure, who we talked about earlier, a Mrs. Williams, wife of the Chinese Secretary of the American Legation, Madame and Mademoiselle de Carcer, the wife and daughter of the Spanish minister, Madame Uchida, wife of the Japanese minister, and a few ladies of the Japanese legation, Madame Almeida, wife of the Portuguese charge d'affaires, Madame Khan, wife of the F secretary of the French legation, the wives of several French officers, Lady Susan Townley, wife of the first secretary of the British legation, two ladies from the German legation, wives of German officers, and the wives of a few customs officials. And the ladies were certainly paying attention. The major Japanese kimono house, Lida Takashimaya, expanded their business to producing garments for the Western market, with its unquenchable thirst for Orientalist art, furniture, and fashion. While some of their garments were based on kimono and traditional Japanese styles, they also made items for European and American consumption that, shall we say, borrowed heavily from Qing dress. A fashionable theater coat from about 1900 is in the Kyoto Costume Institute, and it's one such example. The white padded silk satin robe has a high attached collar, wide decorated banded sleeves, a rounded yoked collar, and Chinese knots at the front opening. The embroidered chrysanthemum on the back is striking. It's very large, unapologetic even, covering most of the back of the garment. Suffice it to say that if the garment had color, it would fit in quite well among Tsushi's court ladies on a cool autumn day. Clothing was central to Tsushi's life, and like her ancestor Qianlong before her, who had codified the court dress system, it played a critical part in her identity and ability to differentiate herself as a Manchu, and how she interacted with the world around her. In her memoirs, Derling recounts an interaction with Tsushi that emphasizes the role of clothing in the formation of a sort of cultural identity. It was a rainy day, and she and all the other ladies-in-waiting had gotten soaked. So she rapped at her window and peered at them through the glass. She bade them enter. Derling explains that none of the ladies, not even the young empress, so she's daughter-in-law, could enter Her Majesty's palace without her orders except for when they had work to do there or when they were on duty. Derling says, quote, Her Majesty was very happy that day. She laughed and said that we looked as if we had been pulled out of the lake. 
While we were talking, Her Majesty gave us orders to change our clothes, end quote. After the others had gone, Zishi told Derling, You are wet also, only your clothes do not show. Derling was wearing what she describes as a very plain European cashmere dress. The Empress Dowager touched her arm, commented on the dampness of the garment, and told her that she had better change. She said, I think foreign clothes must be very uncomfortable. The waist is too small, and it seems to me out of proportion to the rest of the body. I'm sure you will look much prettier in our Manchu gown. I want you to change, and put your Parisian clothes away as souvenirs. I only wanted to know how foreign ladies dressed. And now, I have seen enough. The Dragon Boat Festival will be here next month, and I will have some pretty gowns made for you. Derling was glad to be out of the wet clothes, and even more relieved to be able to wear Changfu. She understood, as Sushi did, that part of being considered a Manchu meant dressing for it. She had lived in Europe for so long that she didn't have any Manchu clothing, and often felt like an outsider at court in her French gowns and accoutrements. No doubt she was treated as such. The other ladies constantly stared and asked questions about her clothes. So she gave Derling some of her own garments to wear that day, and had a eunuch take Derling's measurements as well as those of her sister and mother. She then went about selecting a lucky day to make Derling, quote, a Manchu once more, end quote. Right before Tsushi's death in 1908, Emperor Guangxu died. Remember him? This was the nephew she'd had imprisoned in 1898. He died about 22 hours before she did. Coincidence? I think not. An autopsy done on Guangxu's exhumed remains in 2008 proved the death to be the result of acute arsenic poisoning, with historians generally agreeing that she masterminded it from her own deathbed. More than likely, she was attempting to protect her own reform efforts and fearful that he would resume what he had attempted a decade earlier. She named the three-year-old nephew of Guangxu, Puyi, her successor. Within three years, Puyi was deposed at the age of six, the Qing collapsed, and China became a republic. Almost as though overnight after her death, the large bright patterns that had emerged in court dress under her regency disappeared. And so ends the story of one of fashion history's most notorious figures. Before we end today's episode, I will leave you with one last story about Zixi's trendsetting ways. Zixi was known as a dog lover, and was reported to have kept over 20 dogs at a given time. The dogs had their own villa, overseen by four eunuchs assigned to care for them. Before each winter, the imperial palace would produce lots of warm clothing, mostly coats and the like, for the dogs. The clothes were made from satin and adorned with special floral embroideries in silk and gold threads. One of Zixi's favorites among all her dogs was a little Pekingese. In fact, Zixi is often credited with the survival of the breed overseas. In fact... She reportedly gave them as gifts to the wives and daughters of Western diplomats and dignitaries. She gave one, a small black Pekingese, to Theodore Roosevelt's daughter Alice in 1905, whom Alice named Manchu. A special boy, no doubt, Manchu was once reported to have been caught dancing on his hind legs on the White House lawn in the light of a full moon. Yeah, you heard that right. Not so sure about that, though, but if the letters between Alice and her husband, Nicholas Longworth III, are anything to go by, Manchu remained a beloved and pampered member of the family for the rest of his life, enjoying lots of treats, belly rubs, and long naps in his human's bed. 
No word, though, on whether or not his new family kept his wardrobe up to date every winter. We can only hope. Thank you for listening to History Unhemmed. History Unhemmed is on Patreon at patreon.com backslash historyunhemmed. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a little review love. History Unhemmed is hosted, written, and researched by me and produced by Gary Avizov.